Japan is full of history, both factual and mythological, and we want to share these stories with you. I will be jumping around the history of Japan to find stories both interesting and fantastical. I'm your host, Thomas. And I'm your co host, Heather. We've both lived in Japan now for over two years and have learned so many interesting tales to tell. We'll also be reading a Japanese song or poem for you in Japanese, and we'll discuss the poet and meaning behind these songs. And with that out the way, Heather, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. tired. No, I, th- I just thought you wanted to start because you wanted to explain your voice. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I have a slight cold. So my voice, to my ears, it sounds really high-pitched and raspy. I have no idea what it sounds like to you guys, but I'm going to go body my show. So today is episode 14b, carrying on from the last episode. We did the one side of the thousand yen note, and today we're going to flip it over and do the other side, which has the pictures of Mount Fuji and Lake Motosu. So we're going to look into some of the stories and histories surrounding these two areas. I was going to ask you first, though, Heather, what you already know about Mount Fuji. You can only climb it during... Two months of the year, I believe. It's very well known and used a lot in art and literature throughout Japanese history. That might be the extent of my knowledge. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I can think of, but those, those are the big things. It's, it's used in art, and you can only climb it a very short term, time of the year. Okay, I'm gonna start with the lake, Lake Motosu. So after researching this lake, I thought there might be a few stories actually surrounding it because it's on the thousand yen note but i've actually struggled to find any stories behind the lake if i'm missing something and you are listening and you do know a story about the lake please email in and let us know for the time being all i can really tell you about the lake is a few of its like concrete facts so the lake itself is part of a group known as the fujisan goko or the Fuji Five Lake. Now all of these lakes, including Motosu, were formed during lava obstructions in the past, which formed in the valleys of the Misaka Mountains. And out of the five lakes, Lake Motosu is the deepest at a depth of 122 meters. And that's really all I could find about the lake. I have one more Fuji fact I forgot. Fuji is a volcano. It's an active volcano. Yes, it is, indeed. So Thomas, for those who don't have a thousand yen bill sitting in front of them like I do, what's on the back of the thousand yen bill? So you said Fuji, and there's a lake. What else is on the back of the bill? So in addition to the two places, the note also has depictions of cherry blossoms, which obviously are quite famous in Japan. You have the... Um, cherry blossom viewings every spring. There's a lot of famous places that actually have it, like Ueno Park is a very famous place for this, and people will go there every year to sit underneath the blossoms after work and have like drinking parties and things. So yeah, that is also on the thousand yen note. So yeah, there's not much about the lake, so I kind of want to move quickly on to Mount Fuji itself. So first looking into some of like the well-known facts. Fujisan, as we know, is the highest mountain in Japan reaching a height of 3,776 meters. But what I didn't actually know until I did the research that it actually has three subsidiary volcanoes surrounding it by the names of Komitake, Kofuji, and Shinfuji. Now, Shinfuji out of the three 
has been the most active and has actually over time covered the other two mountains in cinder and lava and kind of buried them. And moving back to Fuji, we have records of its various eruptions throughout time. And our first ever stated record of an eruption from Mount Fuji dates all the way back to 864 AD. Oh, whoa. So are these records or is it like a geological record? We actually have records about this and not just like from geological, like literary records from the time. Hmm. We know that it actually erupted for 10 days straight, ejecting from its summit a lot of cinder and ash, which fell to Earth as far away as Edo Bay, so basically the Tokyo Bay. And we know as well that because of this eruption, there was a lot of death and many homes were destroyed. And the lava flow from that eruption filled a large lake, um, which was then split into two smaller lakes because of the lava. And this lava is known as the Aogi Kahara lava, and at present, it that ancient lava flow is now covered by the Aogi Kahara forest, which is the forest that is famous as the Japanese suicide forest. I did have a question about the names of the mountains. So you said Shin Fuji. Usually, Shin can mean new. So is that New Fuji? And then Ko Fuji. It's maybe like Child of Fuji. So I'm not sure for the mountain that was Komitake, what the kanji are for it, but when it comes to Ko Fuji, yeah, it's using the Ko as in like small or like child, so like small Fuji, and Shin Fuji using Shin as in new. So yeah, Shin Fuji would be new Fuji. As you said earlier, the mountain you can only climb for about two months of the year, There's, it has its on season and its off season. And obviously as you go up the mountain, there is like the established stations that you can rest at throughout the way and this mountain has been widely seen as like sacred in both shinto buddhist and all the other religions of japan and there was one religion known as the fujiko which is a combination of both shinto and buddhist elements and it was this sect that actually established the customs of dividing roots to the summit into 10 different stages. Really? Okay. I was, you know, I was wondering because there, yeah, there, there are several different routes. And I, I have heard stories about people staying at the mountain huts on the way up to Fuji. But usually you, you sleep literally side by side by side by side by side of everyone else who's rented the, the night. It literally like just... You can't hardly sometimes even move because there's just so many people just sleeping in sleeping bags next to each other. Yeah, I didn't know until this point that such routes and stations had been established like quite a long time ago by this like relatively small religious sect. So that's quite interesting. But I know for from what I was reading, they established 10 different stations or stages. But I think now on the mountain, there might only be eight stations. Carrying on from the idea that Mount Fuji was seen as a sacred site, I've, women weren't actually allowed to climb the mountain until 1872. Oh, ooh, ooh, wait a minute. So why weren't women allowed to climb? I'm not actually too sure. Maybe it was a thing of, well, it wouldn't even make sense in a way because obviously in Shinto you have the shrine maidens and in Buddhism you have your nuns. So there were still women in religion in Japan. So why only men could climb instead of women up until 1872, I'm not actually too sure. So probably have to go and look into the actual religion itself to see if they had some... Well, I mean, the different religions are actually involved, but were the roots controlled by that one particular religious sect? Like until 
a certain point of time, or did they just make the roots and they didn't control them? From what I was reading, they didn't have a control over them. They just established them so people、mm. could go because a lot of pilgrims did still climb the mountains at these times from different sects of religion. So Shinto, Buddhism, the Fujiko. Shugendo as well did made a lot of pilgrimage up this mountain because it is a religion founded on mountain worship. So historically, most people climbing Fuji were climbing it because of religion. Were there people climbing not because of religion, just to say I climbed Mount Fuji? There are some references to people who have, but they're mostly. Within fantastical tales,、mm, okay. so whether it happened or whether it was just like romanticized in a way, I'm not、mm. too sure. But yeah, we do have stories about normal people climbing Fuji. But yeah, they're always related to some like folk tale or mythology of some kind. Okay, I'm, I'm... at least from what I've researched so far, there may、yeah. be other stories, but there's so much about Mount Fuji, I kind of had to stop at one point <laughs> and be like. This is enough for today. We'll come back to Fuji another time. So I have two quick myths surrounding the mountain itself, and one is, according to the Buddhist tradition, they believe that Mount Fuji rose from the earth in 286 BC after a giant earthquake, which also created Lake Biwa. And the other one is that legends say any pilgrim or anyone, in fact, walking up the mountain, the sand which they disturb as they walk, which rolls down the mountain, would reascend to its former position every night. So Fuji reset itself every night to its original state. Hmm. Sort of like an etch a sketch. I mean, if you want to compare Mount Fuji to an etch a sketch, sure. Maybe not. I was trying to think of a parallel. So I wanted to quickly. Talk about some of the. Well, I briefly wanted to mention like Mount Fuji and artwork.、Um, mm. Ah, yes. Now, if I、yes. if I told you like Mount Fuji, Japanese artwork, what is the go-to piece of art? You- I think Hokusai, and I think I think it's the thirty-six views of Mount Fuji that he did.、Mm, exactly, and that's what I wanted to talk about. So I think in artwork, the most famous representations are of Hokusai's. Thirty-six views of Mount Fuji. Now, Hokusai was in his seventies when he actually made these, and in actuality, there are forty-six prints, not thirty-six. There was an additional ten made by him shortly afterwards. However, for some reason, they kept the name of thirty-six views. And he also, after this, he created another set of artwork about Mount Fuji called the Fugaku Hyakei, which in English translates to a hundred views of Mount Fuji. So he went from forty-six prints in color. To, he went and made a like a woodblock print book where it has a hundred different views of Mount Fuji in like black and white.、Hmm. In my city, there was recently a Hokusai exhibit. They had a special exhibition in the History Museum, and we got to see several of the prints. We saw the views of Fuji, as well as several of his other studies, including a Japanese plays. There was. A series, a couple series he did, as well as some ghost pictures. There was lots of portraits he did of、uh, lots of lots of different women and、uh, the different people. I think we maybe we saw some of the the hundred views of Fuji. I know we saw the thirty six views. I remember there's one of the woodblock prints where it was、uh, Fuji, but there's two different prints and they were in different colors. There was a blue, it was the blue one, and then the more when you see three different colors. So yeah, that was a very brief bit about Mount Fuji and artwork because. I think most people will recognize, especially the wave. Everyone will know the wave painting, which has Fuji in the background. 
So next I want to just move on to a bit about the origins of the mountain's name. Now, do you know the kanji that Mount Fuji is made up of? The two kanji? I know Mount, which is sun, and I've forgotten the Fuji part. But I've seen it, and if I ever saw it unwritten down, I would recognize it. So these days the mountain is made up of, like you said, two kanji, followed by the one for mountain, which is yama. And these kanji are fu, which can be translated as many or abundance and G which is the kanji for like soldiers or samurai so the mountain itself could be translated as an abundance of warriors or many samurai or something like that but there's obviously debates as to the origins of the mountain's name and it's worth mentioning that there is a folk tale in Japan known as the tale of the bamboo cutter where Fuji is said to derive from two kanji pronounced as fushi, which could be translated as immortal. So it's like the immortal mountain of Japan. There are others that cite it's an ancient name stemming from like the Ainu language, namely the goddess of fire, which went by the name of Huchi. But some have contested this and cited it as relating back to the, te um, the time of like the Yamato court when the first emperors were in session. There's even those who state like it could relate to the old Eastern Japanese languages as they had a word for fire master at the time which in its originality was pronounced Pusuzi and over time became shortened to Puzi which could have then changed slightly to become Fuji. Mm, Fuji. So it's difficult to find an origin to the name of Mount Fuji because there are no documents which talk about its origin. Like we have old documents that talk about Fuji but oftentimes they give different kanji, they give different origin stories to it. So I feel that unless we find some documents that have never been read or discovered before, then this is something that will probably never be answered. Hmm. I really did not know the origin of the kanji, and I didn't realize that there was so much history behind it. You just think hmm. of it, it's the name. It's had the name for a while, but how did it get its name? Thank you. Huh. There is also some who would say there is a a god, a deity of Mount Fuji, and she is a goddess by the name of Konohana Saku Yahime. Now she is interesting mythologically as she is stated to have been the woman who married Ninigi. And if you don't know Ninigi, he was the grandson of the sun goddess, and he later became the great-grandfather of the first Emperor Jimu. So Emperor Jimu is technically descended from the sun goddess as well as the goddess of Mount Fuji. And it was said that on the summit of the mountain she resided there in her palace, and that the goddess could often be seen floating over the crater in a luminous cloud, and at every moment she was attended to by invisible servants who would cast down any pilgrim who tried to climb the mountain if they were not pure of heart. Mm. I'm wondering because I know Fuji is not usually an easy mountain to climb. I would imagine especially, you know, years before we've had like the different uh, protective gear and camping equipment and things, portable food, that the death rate for climbing Fuji was much higher. So if someone died, not because they weren't prepared or their food ran out or their clothes weren't warm enough, oh, they're just not pure of heart. So people who died, that was the reason they died. They weren't pure of heart. And mm, that's, that's tough. I have two more things that I want to tell you about Mount Fuji. These are two different stories. They kind of relate in a way to your earlier question of did, you know, 
normal people climb Mount Fuji. And within these stories, there are two, what you could say, are normal people who do ascend Mount Fuji. However, the stories themselves are quite mythological or folk taley. So yeah. whether they were real people or it actually happened is very, very debatable. Now, the first story was a tale from a document known as the Shintoshi. And this document dates to the 14th century and is basically a document which gives lots of different tales about the various gods and goddesses of Japan. The story itself is set during the reign of Emperor Yuryaku. So he was the 21st emperor of Japan, reigning in the Kofun period. And the story goes as follows. Mono, before I start this, I want to say that this story does have, in a way, a lot of similarities with the folktale, the bamboo cutter's daughter, which you've already told me, Heather, that you know about. Hmm. But basically, to tell you what these similarities are, if you don't know the story, uh, the main character is called Kaguya Hime in this tale and in the bamboo cutter's daughter. And both of them have the same origin story in that they were both discovered as a child in a bamboo grove. So two major similarities between these two stories. However, this story goes as follows. So there was once a couple who were sad that they had no child. And the couple, living at the foot of Mount Fuji, prayed for a child. Then one day, they found themselves happiness. They found a little girl hiding in the bamboo groves behind their home. This girl seemingly having appeared from nowhere. Now the girl was special. She shone with light, and so they called her Princess Glory, or Kaguyahime in Japanese. She grew up to be the most beautiful woman and news reached the local governor of her beauty. And so he approached her and they courted for some time before they finally married. Now, many years later, once the old couple had passed and been laid to rest, she revealed to her now husband that she was actually not of this world and that all this time the governor, her husband, had been married to the immortal lady of Mount Fuji. She had come all those years ago as a child, as she had heard the couple's prayer and wanted to bring them a little happiness. But now that they were dead and gone, she had nothing left to tie her to the foot of Mount Fuji, and so she needed to return to the summit of the mountain where she came from. So she's gone. And the governor, her husband, didn't wish for her to leave. So the last thing she did before she left is she told him that he could come see her if he climbed to the summit. And failing that, he could look at her using a special box of incense that she gave him as a parting gift. And so she returns to the mountain, leaving her husband alone at the base. Eventually, his longing for her grows too dire, and he uses the box to try and see her, but he can only see an indistinct shadowy form within the incense, and so he endeavors to climb the mountain. So he climbs a mountain, and at the summit he finds the lake. Within the lake is an island, and upon the island, at its center, is the palace of Kaguyahime. However, the vapor which rises from the lake in this crater only gave him the most fleeting glimpses of his wife. And so disappointed and alone, he takes the box and clutches it close to his heart, and jumps from the precipice of the mountain to his death. Does this mean he wasn't pure of heart? Possibly. Because he died But no, he jumped off himself, so I doubt, I doubt, like obviously he got to the summit, so he was worthy. But yeah, what do you think of that story? Like, you know the bamboo cutter, so there's probably more similarities that I didn't notice. The Kakuyahime, the most recent iteration of it I've seen, was the, um, actually Ghibli 
movie, the Kaguya-hime, where she's courted, uh, she grows up very beautiful, and she's courted by several different men, but they all have to go and do these certain tasks and come back and in order to win her hand, and then, you know, eventually she does ascend up to heaven as well. So the more tragic end of her husband is not in the story. So that that's one I had not heard. And uh, yeah, very, very sad tale. Like, as soon as her parents die, oh, well, you know, nothing's keeping me here, so bye. So there is one last story of Fuji that I wanted to tell you today. And did you know that there are some stories which believed Mount Fuji held the elixir of life? Ooh, no, but that would make sense. I could see that because... Mm. A very hard, impossible to climb mountain, of course, must have something very valuable on top. The story goes that there was once an emperor of China who heard that Mount Fuji came into being in one single night. So because of this tale he heard, he instantly believed that Mount Fuji must contain the elixir of life because of its sudden appearance. And so he set sail to Japan with a number of handsome youths and maidens. They sail through the storms which eventually abate, and before them they could finally see the rising slopes of Mount Fuji. So they ascend the mountain, and near the summit they're walking through the snow now. The emperor decides that he will run ahead of the convoy, as he wants to be the first one to take a drink from the elixir of life, so that he may never grow old. However, later, once his companions catch up with him, the story goes up. All they found was his body lying on his back, with a smile upon his face. He had found the life he wanted, a life eternal, but that eternal life would be carried out in the land of the dead. Did anyone else drink of the elixir or they were like, yeah, we're good? Actually, that's where the story ends. It doesn't go on to say if anyone drank from the elixir of life. It ends with the death of this Chinese emperor. Mm. Well, Thomas, just like the meandering paths of the different trails that lead up to the top of Mount Fuji, I too have enjoyed all of the different paths you have taken to give me more information about Mount Fuji. So... What do you have for me this week? Oh, Thomas. Luckily enough, I have a thousand yen bill in my wallet or my saifu. I found a poem. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to tell you anything else. I'm just going to read it. And then because you're What, you're not going to tell me who it's by or where it's from? No, I'm going to stir things up a little bit, go a little crazy. I'm just going to start with the poem. And then I'm going to see if you can guess what it's about. You probably already know, but that's okay. Also, I do apologize for the quality of my voice. Can you guess what my poem is about? Well, I heard Fuji. <gasps> Bing bong! So, I'm going to assume that you've chosen a Fuji poem for today's episode. I have indeed. I have chosen a poem by Yamabe no Akahito. I'm gonna guess this poem's gonna be from our good friend, the Ogura Hyakunin Ishu. The 100 poets, one poem each. Why, yes indeed, sir. It is because, do you know, in this book, there's only one poem that mentions the name of Fuji, in, at least in the translation, and I didn't see in the originals, but in the translation, it's my only Fuji poem. And uh, so about, he was born in 724 to 749. I know he served during the time of Emperor Shomu, who reigned between 724 to 749. So not so much known about him, but he was a bureaucrat and a courtier, and he's listed by uh, Kinto among his 36 poetic geniuses. 
In Japanese literature, Fuji is depicted mostly female. So there are some instances where there Fuji can be referred to as male, but in literature, usually female. So which I guess does also tie into like uh, you know, Kaguya Hime. And uh, more interestingly, why if Fuji was depicted you know, having female aspects, but women weren't allowed to climb it. I, I, when you told me that, I was quite surprised. And I would have thought Fuji would have been seen more masculine just because of its, you know, its size. But it is quite a beautiful mountain. And in fact, my poem has a description. I'll give you the translation. Coming out on the Bay of Tago, there before me, Mount Fuji, snow still falling on her peak, a splendid cloak of white. It's very, very fragile description. Very、mm. not womanly. Very dainty. Camera delicate. Very soft because of the whiteness and the yeah.、Mm. Very delicate. That's that's the word I'm trying to look for. Yeah. So and even in the translation itself, it says her peak and cloak of white.、Um, so yeah, I mean it has her peak in the translation. So、mm, okay. So that's my poem. That's very very like not much not so much to talk about. I mean it's it's more of a visual poem. There's possibly some deeper meaning, and it gives nice visuals、mm. for sure because it, it paints Mount Fuji in a very delicate and fragile light, which is very contradictive considering it is a mountain and well, not just a mountain, it's a volcano. So to give it feminine qualities of yeah being very delicate、mm. is very interesting, but also in a way when you do see Mount Fuji covered in snow, you can almost understand why they're making such. Comparisons、mm. because it does look very delicate and it does look very fragile when it's covered in snow.、Mm, that's that's interesting. I I guess I I still think like、uh, I see Fuji and I think of like strength and power. So I li- I like your take on it where it's it seems like more delicate and I'm not sure why I have that visual of it being like even covered in snow still have that visual of of strength. But then again, women are also quite strong. As well, so it could maybe can attribute it to the the strength in the strength of the mountain is not as a masculine characteristic, but the strength as a feminine characteristic. Yeah, I agree、huh. with that. You can definitely see it. Hmm, for sure. So that's my poem for today. Thank you for the poem. You're so very welcome.、Hmm, thank you for the poem.、Yeah. I enjoyed it. Well, that's everything from me. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in, and thank you for listening. Sorry, we had our technical difficulties on the last episode, and you've had two this week in quick succession. I hope you don't mind. We're hoping going forward that we're not going to have these problems again. So it should just be once a week on a Friday for you all. But yeah, that's everything from me. Unless you have anything else to add, Heather. Today I am fine. Thank you so much, Thomas, and thank you everyone. Okay, no worries. So until next week, guys. Matane. If you enjoy the Japan archives and have an interest in Japanese history and mythology, please be sure to check out our growing database over at historyofjapan.co.uk. We continue to add more to it every week, and you can find the show notes for every episode up on the website too. It's a large undertaking, so please be patient while we try to make a database which all Japanese history lovers can find useful. You can find us over on Twitter at a history of Japan. And if you're on Instagram, you can find us there at Nexus underscore Travels. That's N E X U S underscore Travels. We also have a Facebook page, which you can find at Japan Archives. All of our social media is different. Also, if you're interested in little slices of life in Japan, be sure to check out my website over at HeatherOverYonder dot com. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the episode.
And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, or have anything you'd love to hear about, head on over to historyofjapan.co.uk and send us a message. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give us a rating and review over on iTunes. Right now, it's the best place to do so, and it helps us get the word out about this show. Thanks again for listening, guys. Until next time, bye. Mata ne.